preparing us to receive the Lord's word this morning. <clears throat> Most of you know, or some of you know, that Tim Keller, who pastored, uh, who founded and pastored Redeemer Presbyterian Church in New York City. Actually, he he went to Hampton, Sydney here for his undergrad and uh, pastored in uh, just north of Richmond for a number of years before going to New York City. He passed away from pancreatic cancer on Friday. He had just entered hospice on Thursday. So our prayers go out to, to his family. He was co-founder with um, Dr. D.A. Carson of the Gospel Coalition and vice president of that organization for a number of years. Uh, a couple of quotes, a few quotes I'd like to read to you this morning that he wrote. He, he, he authored, I don't know, a dozen or more books. I think I have most of them. One of the best books on preaching that I've ever read, he authored along with Martin Lloyd-Jones. So before, when he knew, obviously, that his time was short, he summarized his life by quoting from John Owen's commentary on Hebrews. And I quote, We're never nearer Christ than when we find ourselves lost in a holy amazement of his unspeakable love. Uh, I mentioned that he co-founded the Gospel Coalition with Don Carson, and Don Carson said... Tim was like an Old Testament prophet. He did not hesitate to address the culture and the nation and the call for justice as well as for contrition. He was jealous, jealous for the glory of God. He was quick to see how the trajectories of Scripture, the structure of biblical theology, drove thoughtful readers again and again back to the gospel. Beloved, that's what we're called to do. We're called, using the trajectories of Scripture and the structure of biblical theology, to drive people, sinners, saved alike, back to the gospel. Just a few of the quotes from him because uh, there, there's an article on the Gospel Coalition on the website entitled 50 Quotes from Tim Keller. I'm not going to read all 50, but he said, All death can now do to Christians is to make their lives infinitely better. If Jesus rose from the dead, then you have to accept all that he said. If he didn't, then why worry about any of what he said? The issue on which everything hangs is not whether you like his teaching, but whether he rose from the dead. He said, describe to me the God that you've rejected. This, describe for me the God that you don't believe in. He said, maybe I don't believe in that God either. Contemporary people tend to examine the Bible looking for things they can't accept. Talked about this a couple of weeks ago. But Christians should reverse that, allowing the Bible to examine us, looking for things that God doesn't accept. The gospel is that I am so sinful that Jesus had to die for me. Yet so loved and valued that Jesus was glad to die for me. This leads us to a deep humility and deep confidence at the same time. I can't feel superior to anyone, and yet I have nothing to prove to anyone. The doctrine of sin means believers are never as good as our true worldview should make us. The doctrine of common grace means that unbelievers are never as flawed 
as their false worldview should make them. Only if your God can outrage and challenge you will you know that you worship the real God and not a figment of your imagination. If your God never disagrees with you, you might just be worshiping an idolized version of yourself. And finally, the glory of God is available to you in the church in a way it is not available to you anywhere else. There is no more important means of discipleship than deep involvement in the life of the body of Christ, his church. I think all God's people can say amen. Amen? Amen. Been with the Lord now. He said he was anxious to see Jesus. I wonder how many of us this morning, and obviously we don't want to hasten the day that we pass, but I wonder how many of us this morning are anxious to see our Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your grace in the life of Dr. Tim Keller, who has meant so much to me through his books and through his preaching. We had a few years ago the opportunity to hear him preach in public. And we thank you, Father, for the grace that you extended to this man, to his family, to write so many eloquent and simple books that reminds us that we as lost sinners can be restored back to a righteous God. Our prayer this morning, Father, is as we dive again into 1 Peter chapter 2 that you would make us aware that we are to be submissive to those that are our superiors. And yes, we're not to feel superior to them nor they to us, but this is the structure of this world that you have designed. Guide us into truth by your wisdom. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So for those of you perhaps that are listening and watching via the internet, we do welcome you this morning. Turn with me along with our congregation to 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter chapter 2. We're going back a few verses this morning from where we were last Sunday morning. Um, these verses, uh, today the goal is to get through verse 20 and the beginning of verse 21, but uh, these verses teach us how that we are to submit to suffering because the Lord Jesus Christ suffered for us. The entire epistle is about suffering. We talk about context. A couple of weeks ago, we uh, and we'll bridge that again this morning briefly, talked about chattel slavery and the context of the Bible, and how important it is to remember that we must include the adjacent verses and chapters and writers and so forth in interpreting the Word of God. We do not have the liberty or the privilege or the intelligence to lift the Scriptures out of their context. And so we're in the midst of one of those this morning. Now, a couple of weeks ago when we started this, I reminded you, this is a difficult passage of Scripture, not because of the interpretation, but because it's convicting, especially to those of us that are born again in the Western world. There's a lot of things that we don't like, and this is one of the things that we don't like. And so Peter says, verse 18, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear." not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. And then the first portion of verse 21. For to this you are called, because Christ also suffered for us. 
First Peter has been called the New Testament version of the book of Job. And many believers avoid Job. We do not like to think about suffering. I don't like to think about suffering. But this is the context of where we are. And that's why expository preaching is so vitally important. It takes us to the context of themes that we would, in many cases, avoid. Last week, we provided to you an introduction to chapter 3, and we primarily focused in chapter 3, or in that introduction, rather, on the epidemic of loneliness that occurs in the Western world. If you would, the first slide, brother. This links together with where we are today as well. So I mentioned to you last Sunday that technology has rapidly intensified the loneliness problem. Uh, And that is one study that said that people that spend two or more hours on social media every day were more than twice as likely to report feeling socially isolated as those that spent less than 30 minutes a day. And I reminded you, your phone will tell you how much time you've spent on, on, the, on social media, on the phone. There was also a Wall Street Journal University of Chicago poll, and we talked about this also, uh, an analysis that uh, say that the core values that once stood out among Americans are as being important, those morals that are worthy of pursuit and emulation have receded. 1998, 70% said that patriotism was very important. 62% said the same of religion and faith. Today, those numbers have dropped dramatically to 38% that are patriots or said patriotism was important. 39% for religion and faith. Having children dropped from 59 to 30%, and community involvement from 62 to 27%. And the vast majority of this drop, I showed you another chart, which I'm not going to show you today, but has uh, dropped precipitously over the past five years. And then I reminded you the importance that we assign to money has increased since 1998. Now, when you talk about employers, you're talking about To a certain extent, the underlying message is our wages. How do we submit to those that have authority over what we earn? Now, this applied to me. As I said, I worked for almost 50 years. Well, I did work for 50 years. Worked for Kroger for a couple of years when I was in high school before going to Babcock and Wilcox. So I have 50 years of that experience. And it's important to remember that, and I would be the first to remind you that I certainly did not obey as I should have or submit as I should have until the last about 10 years or so of my life, my work life. That's not good. And I would be the first to admit that. So the declines that we see here, and these are good things, patriotism, religion and faith, having children, community involvement. These are good things. They won't save you, but they're good things to be involved with. It only emphasizes the biblical, that biblical families have declined. And the rise of individualism manifesting itself as narcissism. I'm in love with me. Remember what Keller said. You have conjured up a God of your own uh, self-love. Self-love, greediness, vanity, and self-absorption. Peter is offering to those Pilgrims scattered abroad, those that are suffering, an antidote to our incessant legalism 
We are incurably legalistic. We want to dot every I and cross every T. So we are, and that's a great sin, incessant legalism, which never saves, and our incessant egotism, because we think we know better than anyone else, and primarily we think we know better than God. Next slide. So Peter writes from actually beginning back in verse 11 all the way through almost the end of chapter 3. He writes stressing a similar theme as what we see here today. He said, you're in a, in a persecuted, he's writing to these people, you're in a persecuted and different environment, and it will get worse. That's where we are today. It's not going to get better. Jesus himself said, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? It will get worse. They were scattered throughout Pontius, through Galatia, through Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, living in a hostile world. We are living in a hostile world. The world is always hostile to grace, always. It doesn't like grace. It wants to be incessantly legalistic. Peter declares if you want to win that world, and that's what we should do, as what we see as we listen to uh, Dr. Carson say how the uh, trajectories of Scripture, the structure of biblical theology, drive thoughtful readers again and again back to the gospel. How does that happen? If you want to win the world, it isn't about what you say although you do have to say some things. It's by your holy, virtuous life. By obeying God's will of command, that's what we're seeing here. This is what Peter's writing to us about. By obeying God's will of command, you will silence the critics. By being submissive to the structure that God has ordered, whether we like it or not, this is not, the Lord did not establish a creation that is democratic. It is his creation. We don't get a vote or say as to whether we like things in the situation that they are. You will silence the critics if you're submissive to the structure that he has ordered that speaks to bring them to the knowledge of their sin. People have to know their sinners before they can be saved. The knowledge of Christ and of his gospel. Now, Peter uses a word, we've talked about this a number of times, Paul uses it, as a matter of fact, but he uses the word submit or submission five times in 35 verses. Look at verse 13. Therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake. He doesn't say to some of the ordinances of man. And we've talked at length about that when we do obey, when we don't obey. In verse 18, we just saw, Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear. Chapter 3 and verse 1, Wives, likewise, be submissive to your own husbands. And we briefly broached this subject last Sunday morning. Look, uh, verse 5, But in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves being submissive to their own husbands. And in verse 22 of chapter 3, um, talking about Jesus Christ who has gone into heaven and is at the right hand of God, angels and authorities and powers having been made subject or submissive to him. So, because he writes to aliens and strangers, beginning right out of the gate in chapter 1, pilgrims in their own culture, and regardless of how long we may live or how, where we put down roots and so forth, as believers, we're always pilgrims. We're never going to be comfortable in a world that is hostile to Christ. We shouldn't be com comfortable in a world that is hostile to Christ. 
You and I are blessed to live in an area that where many, many people, at least they profess the Lord Jesus Christ. So many of you, if, if work for uh, snoopervisors, uh, directors, and so forth, VPs, presidents, and so forth, that perhaps know the Lord is Savior. That's a good thing. Some of you don't. I think in all of my times with, uh, uh, with Limitalk, I don't think I ever worked for one. And I'll talk about that a little uh, later on. And God placed me in that position <laughs> for my good and for his glory. And so he writes to them because they refuse to worship the emperor. And when you refuse to worship the emperor, if they found out, you were killed. So it was imperative that they submit. Now, the first thing that the that Peter writes about in that submission is to the government. We've seen that. Second thing is to our employers or to the masters, as he talks. Third, believing wives to unbelieving husbands. And fourth, uh, a union, chapter 3, of minds within the church. So Peter's not leaving the church out. He's going to talk about the church when we get to verses 8 and 9 of chapter 3. So that we might inherit a blessing. There's a purpose for the church, and one of those purposes is a blessing. Whether you agree with me or not, you're here to be blessed by the Word of God. That is a great blessing. Next slide. So Peter teaches a, a Hostelfeld, which is a German word. You can imagine, of course, Martin Luther was the first one that used it. He used it in his commentaries in Ephesians and on this particular passage of Scripture. And this word means, in fact, uh, Luther would write about the proper domestic or household order in the Christian home. And that begins here in chapter 2. It's not unique to chapter 3. Why does it begin here in chapter 2? Because of context. Chapter and verse divisions are not inspired. So the overall context is the entire epistle. The proper domestic or household order in the Christian home, it implies the highly practical nature of the instructions. What's Peter doing? Giving us instructions. An individual's hostafel duties are not related to abstract beliefs they are expected to hold. Oh, this is just this is just what this is a wish list for our God. No. It's not. These are not abstract beliefs, but they are specific beliefs. They are specific truths you and I are expected to perform. He's going to talk about commendation, and he's going to talk about um, conscience in these verses that we've just read. Now look at verse 18. I talked about this a couple of weeks ago. The word there for slave, and sometimes it's translated servant, sometimes it's translated slave. But the general word for slave was the word doulos. This is not that word. This is the word orkitei, which means household servant. And the overwhelming majority of Roman slaves were household servants that uh, were teachers and doctors and lawyers and so forth that that uh, aided the wealthy and aided some of the patricians there in the Roman Empire. So we looked at this uh, two weeks ago, and I reminded you that New Testament slavery, although it was pervasive, again, 70 to 80 million slaves, it was very much unlike American slavery or Western world slavery, which was race-based. It had limited paths to freedom, if any, and was provoked by kidnapping, a sin which was a capital crime under the Mosaic law. In fact, in the book of Exodus, right after the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, in chapter 21, the Lord told Moses, He who kidnaps a man and sells him, or if he is found in his hand, shall surely be put to death. 
So chattel slavery in America, in the West Indies and other places, chattel slavery was fed by the kidnapping of native Africans and then sold into slavery. Deuteronomy, the second giving of the law. Moses wrote, If a man is found kidnapping any of his brethren of the children of Israel and mistreats him or sells him, then that kidnapper shall die. And you shall put away the evil from among you. So one of the key elements that fed the slave culture in this country was a direct violation of Mosaic law. And unfortunately, it was overlooked for many, many years. Next slide, if you would. Now, the Christian faith, we talked about this because, if you remember, we went back and examined the book of Philemon, or portions of the book of Philemon. Christian faith undermines the evils of slavery via the gospel. I reminded you that Philemon, a wealthy master to a slave, Onesimus, both of them became believers under the ministry of Paul. And so Philemon, basically the gist of Philemon is that uh, Onesimus had, had uh, escaped from Philemon. Paul had led Philemon to the Lord, and then as it were, in the providence of God. Onesimus also ran into Paul, and Paul being the great evangelist that he was, led him to Christ. And he was afraid to go back to Philemon, so Paul writes the letter. And Paul also says, Philemon... You to take him back, and if he owes you anything, because he was a slave, and obviously there was wealth attached to whatever he did, he says, I will repay you. But remember, you're a believer now. You don't live under the same monetary constraints as the remainder of the world. So, Galatians, Paul writes there to the churches, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And so he bids Philemon to take back Onesimus as a brother, not as a slave. So, we spent some time talking about biblical theology, the proper approach to contextual interpretation. And you've heard me say this time and again, and I reiterate this because it's vitally important to us understanding this passage. All passages, but this passage. Scripture is always the best commentary on Scripture. I learned a lot from Dr. Tim Keller. learned a lot from a number, from Charles Stanley, a number of people. Charles Spurgeon and so forth. But they are not the best commentaries on Scripture. The Bible is. We must always remember that. And we'll give you a help, helpful acronym this morning. And we're not going to, I'm not going to go into detail. I will when I get to, uh, um, as that should be, let's see, Second Peter. Yeah, when I get to Second Peter, I'll expand on this. But remember this. People like acronyms because they're easy to remember. SCAN, S-C-A-N. Scripture is, first of all, sufficient. We don't need anything to be added to Scripture. We see this in 1 Peter chapter 1. We read about this 24 and 25. Scripture is also clear. The perspicuity, it's an old English term. You don't hear much about that today, but it basically means the ability to see into Scripture. Scripture is clear. There are some difficult passages of Scripture. I'd be the first to uh, recognize. We're going to come to one when we get to First uh, uh, Peter chapter 3. But Scripture is clear if we use Scripture to interpret Scripture. It gets fuddled up. We become befuddled 
when we try to take human logic and say, well, what does this mean? And it also becomes befuddled when we lift it out of context. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is clear. Third, Scripture is authoritative. So what we're reading here from Peter is every bit as authoritative as the Gospels of Jesus Christ. It is, as Jesus said, heaven and earth will pass away. But the word of the Lord endures forever. In fact, Peter's going to quote that here. And then the final one is Scripture is necessary. Since it's God breathed, he exhaled it, for you and I to, to be alive in Christ, we must read the Scripture. We must have it taught to us. We must have it proclaimed to us. Scripture is sufficient. Scripture is clear. Scripture is authoritative. Scripture is necessary. So remember that. I expand on this when we get to Second Peter uh, in uh, chapter 1 and also in chapter 3. Now, Peter describes an image of what true Christianity looks like in a hostile world. And the way he describes it is using the word submissive. And again, I remind you, the entire epistle is written to those that were suffering under intense and unjust persecution. Peter reminds these people in chapter 5. Look over at chapter 5, 1 Peter chapter 5. He reminds the ones that he is writing to about the old slewfoot, the devil, Satan, Lucifer, Beelzebub, however you want to name him, he reminds us that Satan's prevalent in this epistle because suffering is prevalent. Let us never think that if we are uh, persecuted by employers... If we are persecuted by governments, if we are persecuted by someone else outside of the Christian realm or even within the Christian realm, be reminded that it is Satan. It is satanic. First Peter chapter 5, Peter says, verse 8, be sober, be, be vigilant, because your adversary the devil is not a friend. Your adversary, the devil, walks about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. The word resist is only found here in 1 Peter. Submit's found quite often, but not resist. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith, knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in all the world. Why? Because... Persecution for our faith is satanic. And we'll expand on that when we come to 1 Peter chapter 5. Next slide, if you would. <clears throat> so how does Peter address suffering in this particular passage? Verse 18, he says, Christian servants are to be submissive with respect to their masters and employers. In verse 19, he says, Christian servants endure sorrows when they suffer unjustly. Verse 20, Christian servants are to bear the suffering patiently. And in verses 21 through 25, Christian servants are to emulate Christ when abused. We don't revile. We don't retaliate. We don't resist. And we don't threaten. Well, preacher, do you really think, well, let's see. Let's see what Peter has to say. Christians ought to have the spirit of meekness. Blessed are the meek, Jesus said. Peter heard that. He remembered. Christians are to have a spirit of submission. They're to have a spirit of compliance even when their masters or employers are unreasonable and abusive. Of all 
of the houseful, the house of faith. When we step out from our home, our Christian home, when we step out of the church of the living God, we step into a world that is, as we said, that is hostile and where we are face-to-face with folks, the majority of whom do not know Jesus as Savior. In fact, today, I would dare say that a good number of the ones that we meet know little, if anything, of Christ. Again, think more than 30 seconds. So they, they are not blessed and privileged to have had the years of exposure to the Word of God. Exact same thing and situation that we see here in the Roman Empire. Christians were few. By the time that Peter wrote this, around 60 AD or so, there were not a lot of Christians. So he is writing to instruct them not only to be submissive, but also with a spirit of meekness. Now, this is not weakness, and again, don't misunderstand what he's saying. doesn't mean acquiescence, but it does mean that we are to approach those with the Spirit of Christ. And that's the reason verses 21 through 25 are included in this passage. Peter not only remembers the teaching of Jesus, he also remembers the torture of Jesus. The two go hand in hand. In these verses, we're taught to submit regardless of how fair or unfair our employers may be. Now, fairness, of course, we talked about this a couple of weeks ago. Fairness is um, debatable, is it not? My concept of fairness, your concept of fairness, probably may at some point disagree, and certainly at, at At times, it disagrees with what the Scripture says, what the Lord Jesus says. We know this because of the parable of that Jesus taught about the day laborers. Where the day laborers came, and at the beginning of the day, Jesus said, or the the master said, you're going to work for the entire day. Yes, okay, well, I'm going to pay you X number, X, say $100. I'll pay you $100. So they were happy. Go out into the field, they worked. Nine o'clock, another group comes in. Well, I need some more. I will pay you $100. Twelve o'clock, same thing happens. I'll pay you $100. Three o'clock, same thing happens. At the end of the day, they all come together. The master starts to pay them. This is not fair. The ones that started at six o'clock said. And then... The 9 o'clock group chimed in, and the 12 o'clock group chimed in, and the 3 o'clock group chimed in. And the master said, Men, I have done you no wrong. Did you not agree to work for this? Yeah, yeah. Still not fair. How do we judge fairness? Peter's declared that we have found freedom in Christ. It's one of the will of God's commands. Be free in Christ. Yet, you and I as believers have been set free to a new kind of bondage. That doesn't mean we're free to do whatever we want, to say anything we want, to not choose to work when our employers are paying us to work, to not put in our days, hours, or whatever. We have a new kind of bondage. We are bond slaves to Christ. We know that because, again, of verses 21 through 25. To this you were called. So 
we're not in bondage to sin and Satan anymore, thankfully, because of the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, but we are bond servants of God. And the paradoxical truth is that we are never free until we become bond servants of God. So our freedom is bound in what is declared here for obedience. Next slide, if you would, brother. Now, it says we're to submit. He says we're to do it with all fear. And we're to do that because in the latter part of verse 17, it says we're to fear God. So the fear God in verse 17 also carries with it the idea of what he says here in verse 18. Be submissive with all fear. Have a healthy desire to avoid punishment. And this filters through verses 19 and 20, 18, 19, and 20. So I'm going to ask you a question this morning. Have you, and I think I did this uh, a couple of weeks ago. Ha, have you ever had a spiteful boss or one that showed favoritism or was especially ungrateful and unkind? I dare say if you work for any length of time, you have. I have. At least what I thought was uh, ungrateful. So, I would remind you, of course, that over the course of your employment history, you've probably had some very good managers or supervisors or whatever. I've had the privilege, and I mentioned to you, I've worked for a number of um, very intelligent individuals and individuals that were true mentors. And when the Lord graced me to become uh, in those positions, I remembered the kindness that was shown to me. And I did try to do the very best I could to be kind to people. Now, I expected them to work. I did expect them to work. And I expect them to do the work rather than come in my office and ask me to do the work for them. They need to learn just as other people have learned. So I also asked the Lord every single morning. Gordon was teaching this morning about getting out of bed in the morning and praying. And one of the things that I often did while employed was knowing that my testimony, my testimony and your testimony is far, far more important than the amount of money I made. And so I asked the Lord Jesus, I said, make me like Christ and open doors that I may share my faith in ways that would speak to these individuals. I worked for a man when I first went to work at, at Limitork, one, one of the smartest men. I've, he was a physicist. And having an engineering background, I thought that all engineers were far smarter than anybody until I met a physicist. And this man proved me wrong. So I worked for him a number of years, about 12 or 13 years in a laboratory there. And uh, very, very kind, very intelligent individual. He was also an agnostic. And I was bivocational at another church at the time and uh, director of education there. And so we had a number of conversations. And the very first conversation we had about the Lord Jesus Christ, he said, I don't want to hear any of this. Now, he wasn't mean. He wasn't mad. He said, I don't want to hear any of this. And then after a few months, something else opened up. Another opportunity opened up. I had a chance to share my faith with him, with him and he was more receptive. He said, well, you seem to be a you hard worker. He said, a reasonably intelligent man, which I've always thought that was pretty good. That's a pretty good analysis. If you're reasonably intelligent, that's pretty good. I can tie my shoes, okay? What makes you think this? So I went back to the scriptures. Actually, we were talking about creation. Went back to that. 
And he was never, he was diehard evolutionist when I first met him. And then I explained some of the intelligent design thoughts, went through that. He said, well, that's something to contemplate. Didn't have a chance for a number of years to talk with him. But then, just before I moved from the lab into product development, the time came when I had an opportunity to witness to him, share my faith in more detail about what Christ had done not only for me, but for him. And he again said, well, this is something more to think about. Now, I moved out of that department, moved to another department. And because we were product development, the products would be developed in the laboratory. And so I genuinely saw him about at least once a week, and we would chat about a number of things, among which was our faith. His son, his oldest son, I may have told you this before, but I'll tell you this again. His oldest son was brilliant, went to Carnegie Mellon University, became a computer programmer, software developer, was one of the first hires of Microsoft in 1983. Retired at the ripe old age of 45 worth millions of dollars. Married a young lady that was a graduate of Liberty who led him to the Lord, led his son to the Lord. And his son then became a very ardent Christian. For those of you that don't think the sovereignty of God has anything to do with where you are today, you do not know the scriptures. I have seen it played out hundreds of times. And so his son, his daughter-in-law, they had four children. And they, this man over a period of time developed congestive heart failure. He never retired. I didn't think he ever would, but he, he never retired. He was still working in the laboratory at 75 years of age. His, his congestive heart failure became so severe that he had to go into hospice by the last month or so of his life. I went by to see him several times. The last time I saw him, he told me this is 35 years of witnessing. 35 years. Well, I told somebody about Jesus and that's it. They didn't want to hear it. 35 years. He told me he became a believer. About two weeks later, he passed on. I was invited to do his funeral. Submission works. It works. Not because of me, but because of obedience to the structure that God has placed in his word. Peter says, if you do these things, you become commendable before God. In verse 19, he said, that's the gracious speech, the loveliness that comes from knowing Jesus Christ. Literally, he says, verse 19, this is grace. Always remember that whoever you work for are just like you. They're made in the image of God. They're human, they're sinners, just like you, just like me. God's commendation comes when we do it for conscience' sake. 
if we submit because we're trying to honor the Lordship of Christ, then even the submission that we endure in times of harshness and cruelty is commendable. Next slide. I'll bring this to a close. The second thing he talks about in verse 19 is our conscience. Well, this is commendable if because of conscience toward God. That's our eternal awareness that it's impressed and governed by the idea of God. When we pray, that's our conscience. Our internal awareness that is governed by the idea of God. What's your concept of God? Tim Keller said, you tell me your concept, I'll probably tell you that I don't agree with that concept either. And understanding that griefs are to be born according to God's will. Believers receive God's commendation when our consciences submit to his gracious authority. Most believers resist Peter's teaching. And to do so is sin. This is not about rights. This is about righteousness. We lay up for ourselves the treasures of independence, the delight of our criticism, and we honor those. Our culture is big on this. Honor those with rebellious spirits. Daniel Doriani said we should think this way. If God can command a harder thing that slaves respectfully submit to harsh masters, surely we can submit to harsh superiors since their power is more Modest. Doriani goes on to say, this is his commentary on 1 Peter, Daniel Doriani. And he reminds us he talks about a, a man that he worked for when he was uh, going through college and <clears throat> He, he then summarizes this, and he said if, when he worked for this man who was, uh, who was unfair in many cases and that was bombastic in several cases, and so he said, if I had this job, I'd treat people better and everyone would like the work better. So we often think that, do we not? He says the root of discontentment with people like George, and that's a fictitious name with people like George is a concept of work that is grounded in our culture not scripture we believe that our work should offer more than tasks and income we think work should be a place where we grow we find fulfillment and find and develop our gifts so that we flourish as individuals in a book entitled vocation Douglas Sherman writes that college students view work as a realm for self-fulfillment. An optimal self-actualization. That had to be generated from HR. By working hard and consulting career experts, students think they will, should find fulfilling careers. As a result, they think they will never work for someone like George who's unfair and bombastic. Sherman calls this a myth that applies at best to people who already have the advantage of native, native intelligence, a work of supportive adults, and access to education by the world standards. The middle and lower classes rarely have such opportunities, even in the West. 
In recent years, at this writing, the most common occupations in America are cashier and retail sales assistant. Neither post offers especially fulfilling work, and even upper-class adults are prone to exaggerate their options. Clearly, we should reconsider our concept of vocation. We are to submit to our superiors because Christ submitted to suffering for us. And in verse 21, Peter says, to this you were called. Let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for your word. Our prayer is that you would take this word, that we'd hide it in our hearts that we may not sin against you, and that we would, Lord Jesus, appropriate the word as necessary when we leave this place of sanctuary and go into a workaday world. May those that are young adults here this morning be reminded that if you tarry, they have perhaps a long and varied work history yet to come before them. And so my prayer is, Father, that you would teach them, just as Peter taught those that received his epistle, that we submit not only to the kind, but also to the harsh. If there's one here this morning that knows you not as Savior, may you move in their heart so that they would come to that saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ through faith alone. Have your sweet will, your divine way, in the remainder of this service. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So the closing hymn this morning, <clears throat> if you're here and you do not, do not know the Lord Jesus as your Savior, we, we can't save you, but Jesus can. And as Tim Keller said, the question before you is, if Jesus did resurrect from the dead, what are you going to do with that? It is the truth. It has been testified and proven time and again, as billions, no doubt, have come to know the Lord Jesus as Savior. We can't save you, but with an open Bible, we can lead you to a saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So as we stand and sing this morning, make your way out of the pew, and we can, as, a, as we said, lead you to the Lord Jesus Christ. As a child of God, the Lord may be leading you into the fellowship of this church. Perhaps you know the Lord as Savior need to follow him in believer's baptism. We encourage that you do that this day. As a believer, these admonitions were important 2,000 years ago. They're every bit as relevant as today as they were then. So how do we approach working for someone? And if you are uh, an employer, how do you dispense the kindness and grace and mercy of the Lord Jesus Christ to those that work for you? That's every bit as important as working for someone else. So what number, Brother Mike? 325. 325. If the Lord's spoken to you, won't you come as we stand and sing?